Today on the Ed Search Podcast, I've got a new co-host. Welcome, Marguerite. Thanks, Mary Jo. Glad to be here. Marguerite is the senior editor of Next, our newsletter covering higher education and all sorts of juicy news coming out of that industry. But we're not just bringing her to the podcast booth because of her expertise. She had quite the interesting conversation this week. That's right. When you think about the federal government, you don't often think of innovation. But the Department of Education is testing how new models of education, like coding boot camps and competency-based programs, might benefit students in college and beyond. We had the chance to sit down with Undersecretary of Education Ted Mitchell to hear about the government's role in higher ed innovation. But first, let's get to the news. I'm Marguerite McNeil, subbing in for podcast host Blake Montgomery. And I'm Mary Jo Matta, happy to be back after traveling for quite a while. Welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast. Let's get started. In a not-too-distant future, children may be able to give Elmo more than a gentle tickle. What if the fuzzy toy can listen to kids, assess their speech, and help them develop literacy skills? It's a possibility, thanks to a partnership between Sesame Workshop and IBM to bring IBM Watson's natural language processing power to Sesame Street's content and products. Friends transcend age. So too should classmates. The local school district in Harrisburg, South Dakota is moving from teacher-driven to student-centered learning by eliminating grade levels altogether. EdTech director and 50 States writer Travis Lape shared Harrisburg Freedom Elementary's big plans for a personalized learning pilot this week. The big secrets? Well, like we said before, eliminating grade levels and then bringing in a flexible collection of learning environments that students get to choose from. Give them the power to choose what works for them, Travis says. Code.org and the Computer Science Education Coalition have started a petition and released an open letter to Congress calling for $250 million in federal funding for universal computer science education. CEOs of companies across industries, Marriott, John Deere, and Facebook, to name a few, have signed and pledged $23 million to Code.org and $25 million to other nonprofits. 28 governors and 10 superintendents have also signed the petition. Can all these John Hancocks cajole the legislature? Summit Public Schools in California didn't wait for companies to make K-12 personalized learning tools. Instead, the charter system internally created software with the help of Facebook and invited 19 other schools to try it through a program dubbed Basecamp. Now, Summit has released the fall to winter data from the program's first cohort. The results? Some growth, some lessons learned, and a few revelations about the importance of school culture. Specifically when it comes to stats, students who were the furthest behind did outperform the national U.S. average on the standardized MAP test. But there was one point of stagnation. On average, Summit students, both the traditionally high and the traditionally low testers, only outperformed the national average by a couple of percentage points in math. Udacity's Sebastian Thrun announced on April 22nd that he'd stepped down from his post as company CEO. Vish Makajani, the company's chief operating officer, will assume the throne. In an exclusive interview, Thrun shared with Ed Surge's Betsy Corcoran what he learned from being the godfather of MOOCs, Udacity's next steps, and what giving up the CEO job will allow him to do. 
By the way, before Thrun stepped down, the company shared plans on multiple fronts. In China, students can now take Udacity's paid nano degree programs, in addition to accessing 100 computer science courses for free. Back in the US, Udacity also launched Udacity Connect, a free meetup service in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and New York to facilitate in-person tutoring. And now it's time for Kachings. We saw a couple of big acquisitions this week. First up, money news for the bootcamp community. Capella Education, a for-profit education company, acquired Hackbright, the San Francisco-based coding school for women. The amount of money exchanged? A cool $18 million. And up in Canada, Toymaker Spin Master has acquired Tokaboka, the Swedish team whose popular suite of children's apps have enjoyed more than 140 million downloads. As part of the deal, Spinmaster also acquired Sago Mini, a company that develops apps for preschool children, and one that Tokaboka bought in 2013. Terms of the deal were not disclosed. So Mary Jo, did you ever get an incomplete on a course assignment? Uh, yes, but then again, who didn't? Well, the Obama administration recently admitted that its work in higher ed is far from done. Under Secretary of Education Ted Mitchell, he's the president's number one guy on higher ed, said he'd give his team an incomplete grade. The entire team? Uh, yes. Every single person, all right. Pretty much. So. Mitchell previously served as CEO of New Schools Venture Fund. He was president of the California State Board of Education and president of Occidental College. But in his role with the federal government, he's really been focused on improving college completion rates for first-gen, low-income students. His tenure will end later this year when Obama leaves office. I recently had the chance to sit down with him along with our director of higher ed, Allison Doolin Salisbury. And we asked him what kind of legacy the administration will leave in higher ed innovation. Here's our conversation. Thanks so much for, for talking awesome. with us today. Thank We're very you. excited yeah. about it. And just would love, you know, you came to the role of undersecretary with a unique background as a professor, a head of a state system and, and a college and a venture philanthropy fund. So you've seen it from all of these different sides. Um, how has your experience working with all of these different sides of higher ed shaped your, your worldview on education and what it means to you? Well, thanks for reminding everyone that I can't keep a job. <laughs> um, you know, I, think, I think that there are really two things. Um, I have uh, been uh, at a college, uh, several colleges, research universities, the Arts College. Uh, I have been involved in uh, the governance of K-12 education as the president of the California State Board of Education. And, I think um, those experiences have really helped me understand education as a, a system uh, and not as uh, just higher education or just this kind of college or just K-12. So it's uh, made me acutely aware of the, the moments of transition for students, whether that's transition from pre-K into kindergarten, from uh, elementary school to middle school, middle to high school, and certainly high school to college, and then um, college into, into into the workforce. And being able to focus on the, those transitions, I think, has helped me uh, help the department have conversations across silos. 
uh, and have practitioners begin to talk across silos as well. One of the great events that, um, that the administration has put on has been the, the um, college completion summits. Uh, and uh, sorry, the college. One of the great, one of the great things the administration has supported have been college opportunity summits, and those have been uh, chances for uh, K-12 uh, teachers and administrators to be in conversation with uh, college and university people, talking about creating more durable pathways, more opportunities, more ways of encouraging under traditionally underrepresented students to to go to college and to and to succeed to complete. So it's that kind of making connections across uh, silos that mm-hmm. I think is one. Um, and then the second is that I have just deep respect for the field. I spend most of my time in the field, whether it's supporting entrepreneurs, trying to make opportunities for low-income students when I was at new schools, or working in institutions with, with those commitments. So just deep respect for uh, the commitment in the field uh, and the innovation that uh, that is bubbling up in the field all the time. Higher education gets a bad uh, reputation for being sort of staid and, and slow. I find it just the opposite. I think that there are incredibly interesting things happening in higher education. and uh, I, I want to be a cheerleader for that. Um, at the same time, I want to push those institutions to be doing more. And, and what do you think some of those breakthrough innovations happening um, what do you think some of the ones that we should really pay attention to are right now, the ones that get you the most excited? You know, I get, I get very excited about uh, a couple of pretty geeky things. Um, I get very excited about how um, close we are to being able to actually measure student learning. Uh, and uh, you know, typically, when we all were in, in college, uh, the, the measure of our learning was the traditional midterm and a final. Well, you know, that's a sort of medium-level summative assessment of what we learned, or probably more accurately, what we remember um, at different points. I think we're now able, um, with new technology tools, new embedded assessments, uh, simulations, come back to that in a minute, um, we're, we're actually able to track the way students move through a curriculum, track what they're learning, importantly, track what they're not learning, and being able to personalize the attention of a faculty member or a teaching tool on what students need to learn to be able to fill out the knowledge map. You see this most in uh, the development of competency-based learning programs, where uh, um, the the instructor or learning engineers, um, which is, I think, a very exciting growing part of the ecosystem, um, design uh, courses around a set of competencies and then uh, are able to build assessments into the process of, of learning that allow teachers to, to see when a, con- a concept or a, a competency has been, has been mastered. So that's one. You know, uh, until now, um, we've used proxies for learning, um, and now we can actually get to the real stuff. So that's one of the sort of geeky things that, that I'm very excited about and very encouraged to see and um, <clears throat> I encourage that the department is able to help with the competency-based learning work through an experimental site that we're working on. We have about 30 institutions that are developing competency-based programs uh, with us, and we'll be tracking the progress of those. Uh, the, other, uh, the other geeky uh, place is in the use of data, uh, whether it's through these kinds of learning interventions or simply keeping track of data that we have about course-taking patterns, about uh, student grades, student success patterns. Uh, we're able to do advising 
in a whole different way. It's really important because we've got a completion crisis in the country. Only 63% of students who start a four-year program have finished by the end of six years. Uh, and that's not a randomly distributed uh, uh, 47%, 37%. That's not a randomly distributed 37% either. Uh, we know that um, white students in college uh, graduate at a rate of about 46%. We know that African-American students graduate from college uh, at a rate of about African-Americans graduate uh, from four-year institutions uh, at a 22% rate. And for Latino Hispanic, and Hispanic students, uh, that's an even smaller 15% rate. Um, we need not only to be able to provide access to college for an increasingly diverse set of students. After all, you know, the, the uh, enrollment in the K-12 system is majority-minority for the first time in our history. Uh, and if we're going to succeed as an economy, if we're going to succeed as a vibrant democracy, we need to, we need to close those gaps. Uh, and so to do that, we need to work more with the students who have said with their feet, I want to go to college. I want to get a college degree. I want to finish it. And I want to get a, a, a good, solid middle-class job. Too many of them are not able to get through. So better advising really matters. Uh, Secretary King and I were uh, at Georgia State a couple of weeks ago, and they've taken all of their found data over the last 10 years about course-taking patterns and student grades, and they've created uh, a, a set of predictive analytics that help a professionalized advising team keep students on track to completing their degrees. And they've completely erased the, the success gap, the completion gap between low-income students uh, and higher income students at Georgia State by using big data to help keep students on track. So I think those kinds of innovations are, are really quite terrific. And then I think because of both of those, we're now starting to see that uh, institutions are providing uh, education um, independent of time and space. What do you mean by that? You know, in the, in, in the old days, uh, you, in the old days, and still the dominant mode, is to set a course time and a course place. And to get the learning, you needed to show up at that time and at that place. Um, that's a problem for an increasing number, maybe even a majority of today's uh, learners, today's college students, who aren't 18 getting dropped off in front of the dorm at the beginning of their freshman year. They're the 24-year-old returning veteran. It's the 36-year-old single mom. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the low-income student who is having to contribute to the family economy while going to school. For those students, uh, the pressure of having to organize their life around class time is one of the things that keeps them from either going to college or completely college. Mm -hmm. uh, but with new learning technologies, new learning tools, uh, online learning materials, Students are able to free themselves from the tyranny of time and space and do a lot of their learning uh, in technology-mediated modes through their laptops, through smartphones, through other devices, uh, and uh, continue to move through their education program uh, at a pace that, that, that suits them. So technology is really helpful here. And the innovations, uh, you could think of MOOCs as one example of that. Uh, you could think of... Uh, <coughs> 
other technology-enabled enabled tools um, that are really uh, uh, making it possible for learning to take place uh, anytime, anywhere. Yeah, th these are all really inspirational examples. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about how you see the federal government's role in kind of inspiring this innovation in higher ed um, and and making it equitable at the same time. Yeah, and that's and, and um, you you raised the the exact right point at the end is that uh, innovation for innovation's sake is uh, interesting and it's helpful uh, and it's exciting and it's fun. Um, but what we need as a country is we need innovation that cracks the code around providing high access to high quality, affordable education for the new college student who is more diverse, uh, who has more needs, uh, who is uh, in many ways a, a challenge to the traditional system. And so um, that's been the focus of our work in innovation, is to support those innovations that will make higher education accessible, quality higher education accessible uh, to students for whom the traditional model doesn't and in many ways can't work. So we approach that in a, in a number of ways. Um, one is, is simply uh, using the bully pulpit and shining a spotlight on institutions that are doing innovative things, doing it well, and making a difference. We just put out a report a couple of weeks ago on institutions that are uh, meeting what we call the Pell Challenge of providing high quality education to low income students who are eligible for Pell Grants. Uh, and we brought those institutions together, we celebrated the things that they were doing, the kinds of innovations that I've been talking about that, 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 matter, that matter for these, these students. So that's one. Um, two is that we have, I mentioned the, the competency-based education experimental cycle. We do have authority from Congress to do experiments, to, uh, which is a way for us to really harness the energy in the field and say, come, come, we'll help you, we'll waive some of the financial aid regulations to make it possible for uh, students to use federal financial aid to access these very, very innovative programs that wouldn't otherwise be eligible. Uh, and so we're, we're excited at the range of experimental sites that we have going today. I mentioned competency-based education. <clears throat> you know, there's been a lot of attention to uh, boot camps and non-traditional providers of education. Uh, we see great promise in those. Uh, Low-income students are um, not able to participate because financial aid is, they are, those programs aren't yet eligible for financial aid. Through one of our experimental sites that we're calling the Equip site, experimental site, um, those non-traditional providers can partner with institutions of higher education and with the, the institution's accreditor uh, to build a partnership that will be eligible for financial aid. The other piece of that equip that we're very excited about is that in addition to that three-part partnership, institution, accreditor, and non-traditional provider, we're also asking those in the experiment to identify a quality assurance provider that will be focused entirely on outcomes. And, and we want to focus on outcomes. We think it is the right thing to be focusing on, and we're excited that this experiment is going to not only bring new providers into the ecosystem, um, but uh, uh, create new ways for us to think about uh, quality assurance. A couple others um, <coughs> we're supporting this year for the first time. Uh, since about 1995, uh, Pell Grants for incarcerated adults. Uh, 
and we think it's terrifically important to provide uh, incarcerated adults with the tools that they need to succeed on re-entry. Uh, we're I'm sitting here in San Francisco, and uh, San Quentin is right, right across the bay. Uh, I was at, at San Quentin a couple of weeks ago looking at uh, a coding camp that they're uh, running in, in San Quentin. Very exciting. I'm run by an organization called The Last Mile. Uh, they're heroes. Uh, and the, the uh, incarcerated uh, men in San Quentin who are working on this program are developing skills that will give them access to employment as soon as they're paroled. And we think that that's very, think that that's very exciting. Um, another piece, I mentioned transitions a little bit ago. Uh, the transition from high school to college is a difficult one. One of the things that's been shown to make that transition easier is involvement in dual enrollment programs. It's particularly important for first-generation college students who need to get into their head that they are college material and that college isn't this big mystery, that it's a doable thing. And so dual enrollment is one of the ways that that happens. Um, but here too, uh, until our experiment, uh, students enrolled in dual enrollment programs uh, don't have access to Pell Grants to be able to help defray the costs. And more than 50% of the dual enrollment programs in the country do have an extra charge to students. So we're going to run an experiment uh, to see if uh, providing federal aid to students in dual enrollment programs helps grow the numbers of students who are enrolled and helps them uh, enter college persist in college, and ultimately complete. I want to dive a little bit deeper on the conversation between equity and innovation. So oftentimes, here in Silicon Valley, equity gets left out of the equation, whether it's with ed tech companies or uh, you know Stanford is just a few miles south of us. What is your message to these, these very well-resourced entities that are very much the drivers of innovation as they think about what it means to include equity in that conversation? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, and, and it's a core question. Um, I think that uh, the most important thing that education innovators can keep in mind is that we need to innovate so that the people who have too often been left behind get the good stuff first. Mm. And uh, I think that that's, uh, it's a mindset challenge but it's a, uh, also a business model challenge, uh, and it's a design challenge. Uh, and I think that innovators, and I, I would hope that innovators would take up all three of those challenges. From the mindset point of view, uh, it's we need to make a system that is truly equitable, that's just, uh, that levels the playing field the way our friends at Georgia State have done, Arizona State um, has done making it possible for um, people who may be academically underprepared, first-generation college students, for whom this is all a mystery, minority students who may not feel welcome or at home on a campus that is their campus. Um, all of those are, are struggles that we need to address, um, and they are, they are struggles that uh, innovation is core to solve. That's great. Can you talk to us a little bit about credentials and, and what you think about these, you mentioned boot camps and uh, you know corporate training programs <coughs> popping up. What do you think is going to happen to the bachelor's degree uh, as these new credentials kind of take shape and, and earn value, or, or will they have value? I, I, I think that the, the bachelor's degree has, still has a long life ahead of it, mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I wouldn't um, worry about the demise of a bachelor's degree. I, I think that what's exciting about uh, being able to measure student learning uh, 
and identify that learning with specific competencies is the ability to create more precise pieces, components of what a major means or what a bachelor's degree means or what a certificate means. Uh, and I think that uh, as we get more sophisticated about identifying competencies, developing assessments that measure mastery, we're going to be able, and student, individual students and institutions are going to be able to put those together um, the way one would put a jigsaw puzzle together. Mm -hmm. So that the total picture eventually emerges, but it, it is the product of a number of well-designed, well-crafted small pieces that fit together to achieve the overall, mm -hmm. the overall goal. And I think that that's a great example. So I think the bachelor's degree will stay. I think it will become even more meaningful as we're able to decode what it really what it really means in terms of the competencies that one develops on the path. What are the ingredients you think the ecosystem needs for something, a vision like that to be possible? Yeah, it's this this is where we need, I think, some system level innovation. Uh, so I think that we need to be better about understanding um, what the core competencies are that we want to identify. And, whether those are competencies that are related to uh, uh, specific jobs. And I think that the, the best work has been done in very technical, very specific uh, areas. Uh, um, computer architecture, cybersecurity, uh, welding, uh, sort of there's a, a gamut in which, uh, in a, in a well-developed marketplace of licenses that are associated with some pretty specific companies. So I think we need to translate that into things that we hear business talking about uh, all the time and what they need from college graduates or new employees. Critical thinking, uh, communication skills, the ability to collaborate, uh, to, do, um, to be creative in, in, in the work that we do. Um, we need to take that, we need to break it down into, into component parts uh, and then put it back into the system with assessments that, that will measure it. And we need to have a way of recognizing the value of those competencies outside of the institution where they were developed. Uh, one of the big challenges that we have even today uh, uh, with course taking is that uh, way too many courses that a student takes at institution X aren't transferable to institution Y. We could reproduce that problem at a micro level when we start to think about competencies unless we're careful, clever, and creative, and I hope that we can, hope that we can do that. That makes sense. Um, just to kind of wrap up here, I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about the big questions that you're thinking of and, and keep you up at night and, and you'll take with you as you figure out what you're doing next after your tenure with the department. So I am um, on the worry side. Uh, I'm really worried about this completion problem. And I'm really worried that if we don't get the innovators in our space focused on completion for low-income, first-generation students, for part-time students, um, then we really run the risk of American higher education becoming not an engine of opportunity, but a barrier to opportunity. Um, the, so, and I think that I, I, we all have to focus on that. Um, the tragedy of the consequence of that that we're now seeing in 
vivid, uh, vivid detail is the all too typical student who, low income student who starts college, doesn't finish, leaves without a degree, with debt, um, and doesn't have that leg up that would give them that middle class job that would enable them to pay the debt. Uh, we have to break that cycle. We have to break that cycle for the individual. We have to break that cycle for our economic prosperity. And most of all, we have to break that cycle so that we can remind people uh, and, be, uh, and be truthful that America is a place where if you work hard, uh, there will be a space in college for you. And that space will be a place that will lead you to success. On the plus side, um, I, I um, will, what excites me and gets me up in the is uh, working with institutions that get the problem, that are working on the problem, uh, and to meet with and talk with innovators who are laser focused on, on this work. Uh, one of the, the uh, programs that I'm proudest of in the administration is our first in the world grant program that challenged institutions to develop innovations in just these, uh, just these areas. Uh, and we've been able to deploy $135 million in, in work uh, to that end. And it runs through many of the things we talked about, a, a competency mapping project that's going on at, uh, at MIT, um, work at uh, uh, Jackson State College, a historically black institution on uh, doing uh, a course mapping project. I mentioned Georgia State and the work that they're doing on, on their advising program. These are all first in the world grantees and they're all making a difference uh, in, the lives of, in the lives of these students. So um, that's my worry uh, and that's what gives me tremendous hope. Um, that the innovators are alive, they're well, they're prospering, and they're going to make a difference in this. Thanks so much for speaking with us today and Secretary Mitchell. Thank you. Big thanks to Ted Mitchell for hopping on the podcast with us this week. And for any of you at the Education Writers Association Conference in Boston on May 1st through 3rd, Ted will be there. So say hello. In fact, you can say hello to us, too. Mary Jo, Blake, and myself will all be there learning tools and tricks of the education journalism trade. And before we let you go, a few more heads up. So first off, we've got two big summits coming at you. Educators in Florida, we are coming to your state for the first time ever. We'll be in Fort Lauderdale on May 6th and May 7th. Anyone who works in a K-12 school or district is invited to attend. After all, it's a great way to discover new technologies and it's entirely free. Also, for the first time ever, we're coming to the beautiful Napa Valley as part of the Buck Institute's PBL World Conference. If you're a K-12 school or district administrator, you can attend a one-day To register for either summit or both, just go to our website at www.edsurge.com slash summits slash overview. Do we ever get sick of traveling, Marguerite? No, we love racking up our miles. I but, mean, it's just crazy. Yeah, you know, I'm wondering if one of these conferences could happen in, I don't know, a beach, a cruise. On Mars. Mm, I'll go. I mean, I'm, I'm so there. And with that, I'm Mary Jo Matta. And I'm Marguerite McNeil. We'll see you next time. This is the Ed Surge Podcast. Mm-hmm.